Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things. Friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Well, it's a little different that we would be in here. And in fact, I believe that next week we'll be back in the sanctuary, but we'll be back in there with new sound, uh, new speakers, and lights where you can see what happens on the platform. So uh, grateful David Goon is here and he is helping us. Yes, absolutely. That was half-hearted. Anyway, but David Goon is here and the crew is going to be helping him. Thank you to the church board for helping us to find the resources to do it. And Brandon, who's kind of been the driving force behind all of it. Man, Brandon's done a great job. To get us more caught up. So we'll be back in there next week. Um, I've been gone for a while. Um, was able to step out of the pulpit for about nine weeks and was outside of the church building for eight of those weeks. And um, the first words I have to say to you are thank you. <laughs> that, that time was spent uh, connecting with my family in a way that... Uh, I think will will always shape our being together. Um, I'm not super great at vacationing. I don't know if there's anybody else out there, but I'm not not great at it. It seems like the vacations that we take are always attached to something dad's doing that's work-related. So to be able to get away and to, and you all help to make that possible, to to allow, to to get away and to just vacate (laughs) and vacation um, it's invaluable. Invaluable. And uh, like I say, I, I think we now have as a nuclear family memories that we will always be drawing from. We'll always be saying, do you remember, do you remember, do you remember? And, and I didn't realize how desperately we needed that as a family, nor did I realize how desperately I needed it as your pastor. There was something about sabbatical that told me that I wasn't doing Sabbath right. It took me about two weeks in, actually, before I sort of lost the fidgets, because I have the fidgets. You are a hard habit to break. And I had them, and, I, and it took a while um, before I was able to finally <laughs> trust this very talented group of ministers and our church board and the folks who teach classes and all of our leaders and and ultimately trust God. Took me about two weeks to trust God (laughs) with you, but uh, we got there. We got there. But in order to completely, funny as it may sound, disconnect from this place, I kind of needed something to immerse myself uh, in. And I went to something that was pretty familiar, something that I have loved from day one. I have been a baseball fan for a long time. Now, no good at it. No good. My body is not a baseball body. So I I always kind of wanted to be good at baseball. Never was. Never was great at it. But I loved it. Loved watching it. Loved listening to it. I used to go to sleep at night listening to uh, Texas Rangers baseball games, especially when they played on the West Coast. I even found and brought back from mom and dad's house in Kansas City the old, old transistor radio that I used to put right beside my head, and I would listen to those games as I went to sleep. Found it, still works. I think it's the same batteries that are still in there. I re-immersed myself into baseball. hope that's okay. I became a fan all over again. I I got to where I was looking at box scores all over again. I I got caught up in some of the storylines of baseball. We saw over the summer nine different major league games. Taylor saw ten, if you count the one in Canada. You don't have to, right, if you count that one. She saw ten. We saw nine. As a family of four, we saw nine different games. 
And I have a, a brief little awards list I want to, to give to you. Now, this is not scientific, and if somehow I hurt your feelings because your, home, your favorite team was not mentioned or not mentioned properly, I completely apologize. It's probably Drew's fault, okay? But <laughs> so um, here, you can put those first, the first set of pictures. Is this going to work the same as always? Excellent. Look at that. That is Progressive Field in Cleveland. Okay, up top left corner there. And they win the award for best food. We had a gourmet grilled cheese there that was unbelievable. It may not sound like much, but it was really good. However, uh, the, most, the widest variety of foods can be found at Yankee Stadium because you can get beef wellington on the way to your seat. Or, like Drew and I did, you can get your Chinese food while, mom and, while uh, mom and Taylor got their hot dogs. And it was just a lot of different food and crazy variety of food. At Texas, in, at Globe Life Park in Arlington, you can get what they call a boomstick. Now, it's $26, right? It's two feet of chili dog and uh, chili, cheese, jalapenos. It's 26 bucks because they actually include the ride to the hospital right after you... <laughs> have a boomstick they take you directly to the hospital um most comfortable seats uh there at the bottom there that is yankee stadium i wasn't able to go to old yankee stadium and i'll always regret that now kelly and i were able to go to yankee stadium a couple years ago and we caught a red sox game and toured monument park and saw all of that there's a lot of history at yankee stadium an impressive amount of history but they get the award for most comfortable outfield seats. I mean, they were padded. They were almost like recliners, lots of room. So you had a great view of the stadium there, but you could also have very comfortable seats so that you could endure the brutality of the fans who were just giving it to the left fielder, left and right. It was both horrific and hysterical all at the same time. I cannot report to you what was said to Ben Zobrist, but it was funny, trust me. And I know he heard it. I know he heard it. The most spirited fan bases, it was a tie. Um, Kansas City. See? <laughs> we went to a Royals game, and it was raining, and it rained, and it rained, and it rained. Uh, we thought, and at one point even hoped, <laughs> that they would cancel, because we would have gotten tickets to another game the next day. But that people stayed, and two and a half hours later, at 9.30, they kicked up, and the stadium was still full and loud. It was impressive. It felt like a college atmosphere, as did Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh sounded a lot like a, and if those two teams meet somehow in the World Series, that'll be a lot of fun, because that will be a very loud fan base. Best fountains in the outfield, no question, Kansas City. They had uh, the best fountains in the outfield. The prettiest park. Now, someone's going to get their feelings hurt here. But the prettiest park, and we saw a lot of prettiest, pretty parks, but that park in Pittsburgh, you guys, is pretty. It is gorgeous. And Ron Wright is obligated now to send me $25 in the mail. Yeah. No, it is gorgeous. I don't know. You can't really see it there. The picture doesn't do it justice, but the backdrop is actually the skyline and a walking bridge, and it's just beautiful. And the river right there is just, just beautiful. But City Field is gorgeous there in New York Mets Field, and we are very partial to Globe Life Park, although it's hard for me to call it that. The ballpark there in Arlington, very, very close. The best baseball experience, though, top to bottom, it felt like you were going to church in some ways. It was Fenway Park in Boston. And here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. At Fenway Park, more than the other parks, there was a ritual. Everybody kind of knew when to stand up and when to sit down. Now, if you're a visitor to a church, if you've never been to church before, you look around and people kind of seem to know when to stand up. They know when to sit down. They're all singing the same songs. Yep, you could say all of that about a game at Fenway Park right? Everybody sings, take me out to the ball game. Most people sing God Bless America somewhere around the seventh inning stretch, but the eighth inning stretch in Boston, they all sing together really loud, Sweet Caroline. Ba, ba, ba. I mean, they all, they do the whole thing. It was just beautiful. In fact, there was a player who used to be with them named Shane Victorino, and every player has walk-up music. And Shane Victorino's walk-up music was meant for the crowd to sing it with one another as they walked up, right? And he would stand outside the batter's box until they all finished singing. And then he would step in. 
It was incredible. It's a pretty park. There's a lot of history there. We had great seats. It was just all kinds of fun. Now we saw nine games, and we saw three walk-off wins. When the home team, the home team always bats last. So in some sense, you could say it like this. The home team always has the last word, right? And we saw three games end when the home team walked off. In Colorado, we were there with Jason and Katie. It was cold. It was cold. It was June the 4th. It was our anniversary. And we had stayed through a rain delay. In the bottom of the ninth, it was tied. The bases were loaded. And Nolan Arenado hits a, fly, a sacrifice fly, and they win. And there was great jubilation, great celebration. The home team has the last word. Then in Chicago at Wrigley Field, it was a relatively actually low-scoring game. It was 0-0 zero to zero in the bottom of the ninth when Chris DeNorfia hit a sacrifice fly with the bases loaded. And sure enough, the Cubs, the home team, they win that game as well. On June the 28th, we went to see the Mets at City Field. Now, this is an interesting one. The, the Mets and the Reds were playing. Now, this is Toby Rowland's favorite team, the Reds. So the Reds are in town to play the Mets. The Reds and the Mets had their game suspended after the sixth inning, okay? And so they were going to play the last three innings the day that we got there and then play the next game already on the schedule. So if you got there that day, if you had tickets that day, you kind of got a game in the third, except that that first game that was suspended lasted until the 15th inning. <laughs> And this is the point at which my wife needs an award because she stayed through both games. It was quite the trooper, all right? She got a hat out of it, but still, it was a great, it was a great deal. But the end of that first game, home team had the last word, had the last at bat, and they loaded the bases. And Lucas Duda, the first baseman for the Mets, hits a sharp ground ball to first base. The normally sure-handed Joey Votto scoops it up and then promptly drops it. The run scores and the game is over. And there was great celebration and excitement. We saw three games. That was pretty good. Three out of nine that end in pretty dramatic fashion. It's pretty, pretty, pretty good. Now, while I was able to disconnect from my duties as pastor, I didn't disconnect from Christianity, you'll be glad to know. I was still reading and praying, and I came along this phrase several times. It was actually from one of my favorite authors, uh, a very earthy Christian woman by the name of Anne Lamott, <laughs> who says often, grace bats last. <sighs> so in baseball, the home team always gets the last word. The home team always bats last. But we Christians believe that grace bats last. Now let me unpack that a little bit because um, I, think, uh, I think we need to reexamine the ramifications of that belief. If in fact we do believe that grace bats last. Bats last. Now you heard the scripture read, Brandon read Psalm 130 for us today. Now, we believe that Psalm 130 serves as some sort of poetic and beautiful narration that lies beneath a very important and gut-wrenching story in the life of David. We so believe that, that in the lectionary to this day, 2 Samuel 18, this gut-wrenching narrative, and then Psalm 130, sort of the narration underneath it, are always grouped together. And I'm going to preach from Psalm 130, but I'm going to walk you through a little bit of 2 Samuel 18 so you kind of know what's going on here. King David, the greatest of Israel's kings, a man after God's own heart. He was the king of all Israel and the king of shooting himself in the foot. I don't know what happened. I don't know how the shepherd boy so faithful that he could defeat a lion, so faithful that he could defeat a giant, I don't know how that same shepherd boy wanders so far that he feels like he's above the law. But that's what happened. He felt like he was above the law. And one day while on top of his palace surveying the land, he spied beautiful Bathsheba, lusted after her, made arrangements to have her though she belonged to somebody else. Sure enough, had an affair with her. She got pregnant. 
he tried to cover it up, and when he couldn't cover it up, he did what he thought would be the next best thing and had Bathsheba's husband killed. A man after God's own heart. The king of all Israel and the king of his own destruction. So the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, you've done a terrible thing. You have changed the trajectory of your own life. You have changed the trajectory of several other lives. You have changed the trajectory of Israel. You have changed the trajectory of your own family. In fact, this son will die. And another son will stir up trouble against you from within your own house. Sure enough, Bathsheba's child died. And Absalom, David's other son, started to organize against the king. I hear that Absalom was a good-looking guy. I mean, he had really, really, really long hair, and we'll get back to that here in a second, but apparently it was beautiful hair. Apparently this was a good-looking guy who drove a good-looking chariot, always with 50 guys in front of him announcing his coming. Apparently he was very, very popular. One time when there was a long line, long line of people who had disputes that they were carrying to the king in hopes of getting some sort of judgment one way or the other. One time when that line was so long that people were getting sort of antsy, like people get in a really long line when it's really hot, Absalom starts working the crowd saying, it's not right that you should be in this line for this long. It's not right. You know, if I were king, I would make sure that this kind of thing didn't happen. I would make sure to settle these disputes quickly. You know what? This strategy worked, and Absalom was able to divide the country, and most of the people were with him and against David. In other words, all the things that the prophet feared would happen were happening. As a result of David being the king of terrible choices, the king of shooting himself in the foot, this man after God's own heart had wandered far, far away and now was reaping, reaping the awful consequences of his decisions and his actions. This thing descended and disintegrated into civil war. Sure enough, Absalom was able to gather the military on his side except for some really good strong fighters that stayed faithful, faithful to David, one of those guys was named Joab. Kind of think of Joab now as the sergeant of arms. Um, and Joab stayed very faithful to David. David knew that he was suffering a civil war that was largely his own fault. David knew this. But David also knew that there was a son of his on the other side leading this charge. And while this son had taken an adversarial position, still the father in David could not see Absalom as his enemy. And so David says to his gathered up military thinkers and leaders, a couple things. He says, okay, we're going to move the battle from the field to the forest because we know the forest better than these young bucks and we will win when we go to the forest. And sure enough, he was right. But he said this to Joab and his surrounded people as well. He said, if and when we find Absalom, he's my kid. Please deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. And so sure enough, the battle goes to the forest and just as you might expect, the wise fighters are better than the young fighters. And according to scripture, the forest took more people that day than the sword. That's in scripture, pretty interesting. And Absalom was trying to escape. Knowing that things were turning against him, Absalom was trying to escape. And so he's running through the forest on his kingly mule. That's what's in scripture. I don't get that either, but it says mule. And the mule ran through a tree with low-hanging branches. And Absalom, because of all that great hair... Apparently did not see it coming, was not prepared, and got his hair caught in the tree, in the tree branches. So much so that he got hung up in the tree and the mule ran away. So now you've got 
is this rebellious son, rebellious leader of the opposition hanging there by his hair. That can't be comfortable. Vulnerable. Defeated. And vulnerable. Joab finds out. Long story short, Joab, having heard what David said, deal gently with my son Absalom. Having heard what David said, Joab still went back and killed Absalom. You see, Joab had suffered personally at Absalom's hands. Joab lost all of his farmland because Absalom saw to it that all of Joab's farm and lands would be burned. And so Joab was going to have his vengeance. And so he killed Absalom. Word finally got back to David. And the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And the entire narrative of David, boy David, leader David, hero David, king David, now victorious and yet wounded King David. This probably represents the lowest point. And as legend has it, this is probably the point at which David voiced or wrote the words of Psalm 130. All right, now hear this. This is a sermon series entitled, This is My Story. And what you're hearing today is another iteration of my story. I've told you my story before, but I'm telling you again using a different metaphor, using different language. But hear this. I think what we're going to talk about now is the crux of faith. Everything else that we do and say having to do with faith is all ancillary to this. David's voice. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you're going to keep score, Lord, who's ever going to come out on the right side of that scorekeeping ledger? So a broken, a guilty David goes to God. God who knows fully well what David has perpetrated. A God who knows David. A God who knows everything there is to know about David, and yet still David goes to God and says, God, you know that I'm not worthy. Here's the first thing I want you to be aware of. I think we have this belief that in our religious circles and our religious movements that we've got to get dressed up to go to church both literally and figuratively. Now, think with me. Some of you think I'm making a fashion statement, and I am not, so you need to pay attention. Some folks think that you've got to get dressed up to go be in the presence of God. Get your stuff together and then come see God. Hear this. If that's you, I love you deeply, and you are desperately wrong. And maybe the problem is that you have a fundamental misunderstanding of how this God is, how this God does. Yeah, but I understand myself. Yes, so does God. But you may not understand the nature of this God or how this God seems to want to go about character transformation, even yours. David, by this point in time, understands something that perhaps we all need to remember. David does not dress himself up to go into God's presence. In fact, David's second line here is, look, if this is going to be about scorekeeping, about you taking stock of where I am or where I'm not or what I've done or what I haven't done, I'm already out and I've already lost. I'm glad the psalm doesn't end with verse 2. Can I get an amen there? Not bad. 
but there is forgiveness with you that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. Here's the thing. This statement, there is forgiveness with you, is not a derivative statement. In other words, there is nothing that goes before it. In other words, it is not like I said or that David is saying right here, once I do this, then there is forgiveness with you, God. Now, this is a tough one. Okay, now stay with me here. I asked my Sunday school class today, why is it so hard for us as believers to believe that God is positively inclined toward us and that we are acceptable? Why does it seem to be more easy for us to believe that God is negatively, at least initially, negatively inclined toward us and we are somehow unacceptable, at least until we do A, B, and C? Why do we have this awful human tendency to believe that we are unacceptable until we do this, then we're finally acceptable. Very bright young man in my class said this, well, because that's the way society works. That's the way we treat other people. Perhaps that's the way we've been treated. This forgiveness here in Psalm 130, this forgiveness is forgiveness ex nihilo. <laughs> In other words, it starts with God. Okay, I'm going to sit down because that wasn't nearly as exciting to you as I hoped it would be. So I'm going to turn me up a little bit, Zach. Okay, here's the deal. You never did earn your forgiveness. You never did earn your forgiveness. It was given to you as a gift. Now, you didn't have to say yes to it. In fact, let me say that better. You need to say yes to it. You need to receive it and appropriate it and swim around in it and get it all over you so that you can be different. But you did not earn it. You did not pay for it. And that's hard for us because we pay for lots in our society. But David finally understands. What I came to understand in February of 1992, <laughs> that the favor and the smile and the acceptance of God that I ached for and worked so hard for, I could never quite grasp by doing it right. But when I realized that God chose me before I chose God, when I realized I had as a gift what I was working so hard to get, when I finally received it and drunk deeply of it, then my life changed. Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. What if we all believe that God's initial word toward us was not no until it's yes, but what if we all lived and believed as if God's initial word and posture toward us was yes? What if? What if we all lived and believed that God's initial word and posture toward us was not no, not until, but what if it was yes, even though I know about you? Would that change the way you understood yourself as you looked in the mirror? Would that change perhaps your life trajectory? Would it change the way you dealt with other people? Could you at that point then stop treating people as if the, the initial posture and word you had for him or her was no until it's yes? Could you at that point be large enough because God would so fill you and build you 
Is it possible that you could ever get to the point where your first word toward the other would be yes, yes, yes? There are a lot of deer in the headlights out there. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's because perhaps this is foreign to us. Perhaps you and I swim around in a culture that is so steeped in earning your keep. And you are as valuable as you are productive. And as soon as you get your stuff together, then you can be acceptable. Maybe we live so often in that culture that it's really hard for us to believe. We kind of believe it's too good to be true that God would say yes to us now and forever. Well, finally, there was this guy. There was this guy. And his name is John Wesley. There was this guy who, like many of us, struggled to believe that the word of God would first be yes. Some things you may not know about young John Wesley. Eager Beaver, this guy, worked very, very, very hard, studied hard, worked very hard. In fact, he was such a rising star that his own church decided to send him from England to be a missionary to the Badlands of Georgia. And if you've been to Georgia, you know what I mean, the Badlands of Georgia. So they sent him to the Badlands of Georgia to plant a church, and it was John Wesley's stated hope to be able to recover primitive Christianity, the primitive church amongst these peoples, these settlers in Georgia. So he tried to institute discipleship. He tried to institute means and practices and disciplines and all that kind of stuff. But here's the problem. Here's the problem in all of this for John Wesley. The problem was John Wesley he fell in love. This is some of the untold story behind this. He fell in love with a young woman named Sophia. Sophia Hopke. Doesn't she just sound gorgeous, Sophia Hopke? <laughs> fell in love with Sophia Hopke but kind of thought he could never pursue the relationship because she would take more time, the relationship would take more time than he could actually give because he was called to this ministry. And so he told Sophia, and they had developed something of a love relationship by that time. He said, I, I can't, I can't marry you. And she said, okay, then I'm going to marry that guy over there. And she did. She married Mr. Williamson. And so now Sophia Williamson was around. And this was really a struggle for young John Wesley. It was really a struggle for him. In fact, when she came to take communion, the father of this concept for us, of this open table, helped us articulate this open table, he refused her communion. He refused her communion. And it shattered that little community. Because now the guy teaching us all this stuff was not in and of himself able to embody it. Was not able to embody it. And so things kind of unraveled and he got called on the carpet back in London. And so he went back to London a shattered, broken person. And so shattered and so broken that not only was his call to ministry in jeopardy, but to hear John Wesley tell it, his entire life of faith was in jeopardy. Folks, we have had ministry interns here who are at this moment no longer in faith. It is not your fault. Now, church work is hard, but you all didn't do it to them. Some of those folks, two of those folks went to other churches and were just browbeaten. And when ministers are heartbroken and browbeaten, especially if at some point they look in the mirror and they say, this may be somewhat my fault, they have the awful tendency to wonder whether or not they're called into ministry, then to wonder whether or not the church actually works, then to wonder whether or not God exists. And that's where we find John Wesley. Wondering, asking the deep questions, does any of this work? Does it work? He had a friend, a Moravian minister named Peter Bowler, who knew all of this and knew that he was going to have to be, to be before all of his elders. And sure enough, John Wesley had to go and sit in front of his elders, and he got browbeaten again. So he was pretty low. Peter Bowler got him and said, let's talk. Now, Moravians, this is way oversimplified, but here's the deal. What do Moravians believe? They believe that whatever the question is, Jesus has a pretty good answer. And so Peter Bowler took John Wesley aside and said, 
you need to come sit with me and my little Moravian bunch. I think we can help you. I think we can help you. So the day came. It was May 24th, 1738, I believe. And there was going to be this meeting of the Moravians that night. But that day, that day, he went to St. Anne's Cathedral and he heard the choir singing an anthem. And the lyrics of the anthem were Psalm 130. So John Wesley heard King David ache out loud, but then end up with this statement. But there is forgiveness with you. There is hope with you. And I wait, and I wait, and I hope. There is forgiveness with you that I have not earned. So here's that at the afternoon service, and then that evening, he went to the small gathering. And I know this sounds incredibly exciting, but here's what they were doing. <laughs> As he walked up, he could hear them reading from the preface of Luther's commentary on Romans. Amen. But then he heard something. heard something that kind of made it all make sense. As he was listening in, he finally heard and it finally made sense that Christ was enough where salvation was concerned. He finally heard that even where wounded and defeated and loser ministers were concerned, guilty. <laughs> that grace bats last. That grace bats last. That grace has the last word. He writes in his journal, in the evening I went very unwillingly <laughs> to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I know some folks who trust themselves for salvation more than they trust Christ for salvation. I got to get myself together. And when I get myself together, I know some folks who trust the law for salvation more than they trust the grace of Christ for salvation. And you can see it not just in the way that they deal with themselves, but you can see it in the way that they want me to deal with others. Please take good notes. Until or unless people fall within the parameters that we set by virtue of whatever. No, no, no. We trust Christ for salvation. You are who you are as a Christian because of Christ. And then at some point you said yes to what Christ had already done. When you come to an altar, and we don't have one here, <laughs> when you come to a place of prayer, if you still feel like you're having to talk, if that's what you're doing, you come down here, you're sweating and people are pounding you on the back and you're working really hard trying to get God to do something that somehow God's not willing to do, you don't get God. If there's a wrestling match going on down here at the altar, and perhaps there is, there needs to be probably, it's not between you and God, it's between you and you.
Will you finally say yes to the gift that God has for you that you can't earn? You might as well just give up trying to earn it and just be grateful for it and live in response to it. And by the way, this experience, which by the way was such a big deal that they put a plaque there. <laughs> they put a giant plaque, a giant stone plaque there that you've seen it, Kelly, right? Kelly H., you've seen it. It, they put this giant monument there because, you know what, it started a whole movement and we're supposed to be that movement of people who understand that we live in response to this gift of grace and we believe that our lives of faith and our morality are all of a higher caliber and quality because we're not trying to earn something from God but because we have already received this something from God and we live in response and in gratitude for that which we could not ever buy or earn. And what does this look like when it becomes mission and message? Because while this has great therapeutic power, I hope it does, I hope you feel it, I hope you feel better because of it, but if it stops just with you, you still don't get it. Because it has to run into you and then through you as mission and message. Because there will be some people who will say, oh dear God, pound in my chest, yes, I'm a scalawag and I know that you love and accept me, but those people are dangerous and I'm not sure that we should have those people with us. So some of you want for yourselves what you don't want granted to others. Not here. This will be the place where hearts can be strangely warmed. Not because we ever leave anyone with the impression that they have earned their place at this table. But because we will continue to sing and say and organize so as to be able to better communicate this message that while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us and proves God's love for us. I've heard a couple times this week, man, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, I'm struggling. Oh, I welcome the strugglers. I welcome, welcome strugglers. Sometimes we struggle. Because it's hard to reconcile the society that we live in with the message of grace that we hear here. I welcome that struggle. I kind of want that to be a struggle. Sometimes that's the nature of the struggle. That's why we do this. Now on a weekly basis to give you a tangible, touchable reminder that you are invited around this table not ever because you deserve it. You'll notice we say every time we're careful about it, come with your hands cut. If there is a credit card, if you walk up with a credit card in your hand, where can I get some communion? Right? We will say, brother, sister, have a seat. Sit right down. We're going to have some people come over and explain to you that you will not ever need a credit card to get the most important stuff in the universe. <laughs> in the hopes that your heart can be strangely warmed so that your heart can be employed to be a part of the process whereby other hearts are strangely warmed. So come with your hands cupped to this table. And by the way, our table is open. What are the requirements for coming? If you know you need God, you are welcome here. <laughs> If you don't know you need God, you're probably not in the room. If you don't know you need God, trust me, you need God. Come on. But if you know of your need for grace, if you know yourself, if you know, if you know that you're going to be found out when the God of all love looks at you and knows all that there is to know about you, if it feels like you've been found out, Man, you need to find your way to this table. 
to receive this gift, this tangible expression of, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still goners, sinners, Christ died for us. If you are serving communion, if you will go ahead and come and help us to get ready. I have missed this part. By the way, John Wesley's brother Charles had a very similar experience, very near the time that John Wesley had his experience, very similar experience. Now Charles Wesley, while John Wesley was the scientist and the teacher and the the minister, the speaker, Charles Wesley, a pretty good preacher in his own right, wrote songs. And the song that he wrote after this great experience was, And Can It Be That I Should Gain an interest in my Savior's love. In a moment, you're going to be asked to stand up and exit your pew (laughs) to the left and to come forward to one of the six, I believe, stations here with your hands cupped. Heavenly Father, bless these elements. Bless these elements, God, and use them. Use them to further our understanding what it means to be the taken, blessed, broken, and given people of God. May these elements strengthen us to be more than we would have been otherwise. Because of your presence, God, may we see ourselves, others, and you differently, strengthened as we will be by these elements. So, and again, come. Exit your pew to the left. Come forward, your hands cupped. There'll be a good-looking couple of people in front of you at some point. The first person holding the bread will break off a piece, place it in your hands, and say, the body of Christ broken for you, that's that tangible expression of the grace that you cannot earn or buy. Take that piece of bread and immediately dip it into the cup right there. When you do, that person will say, the blood of Christ shed for you. Then take and eat right then and there, and then circle back around and head back to your seat to pray, I hope, to pray. After this, Jason's going to lead us in a short pastoral prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. If you are in need of sitting where you are and yet you want to be served, then Jason will come and find you. If you can't make it to us, we'll make it to you. Again, this is an open table. All who are aware of their need for grace are welcome. And so now, all across the sanctuary, right after this, I'm sorry, it was on the night that he was betrayed. That our Savior took bread, blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat of this bread, remember, remember me, remember this. Later on after dinner, he took the cup, he held it up before them, he said, and this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Every time you drink of it, Remember me. Now, all across the sanctuary, I would ask you to stand, exit your seats to the left, come forward, and receive that which you cannot earn or pay for.
Heavenly Father, remind us again and again and again as often as needed that these Christian habits and practices that we talk about so often, from scripture to prayer to service, all the things that we talk about so often, remind us as often as need be that these disciplines and habits serve to change us and not you. Remind us, God, constantly that your mind about us is made up. Remind us that we do these things and even attend and worship so that we can be constantly oriented and reoriented back to your face and your yes for us. God, my prayer for those who struggle today is that somehow, through bread and cup, through the word preached, through a song, through the embrace of another person. My prayer for the struggler today is that that person would in some way, in some measure, be reoriented just enough to catch a glimpse of your face. God, forgive us for being people who live so often and swim around so often in our own culture and its rules that we, we find ourselves wet. <laughs> Forgive us, God, for being those people who then come to church and then expect you to be and to behave the way we see the other gods and the other systems behaving and working out there. Forgive us, God. In fact, God, capture us. And so convince us of who you are and how you do what you do that we can finally be those people who take a very different orientation, take a very different posture when we go back into that workaday world. May we be believers and followers and the captured of God who work and not the other way around. God, we pray for those who are sick around us. We pray for Betty Fain. God, hold her and keep her. God, we pray for those who are still battling and struggling against cancer. Hold their arms up. May they understand that you fight for them and with them. May they know of our love and support for them. God, many have already gone back to school, students and teachers. Many will go back this week. Kindergartners, elementary school, middle high school, college students, adults of all ages. God, this is such an important time. It's such an important trade. God, we pray right now for all those who would teach and serve and learn right now across the sanctuary, if that's you, if you're a teacher or a student or in any way affiliated with one of our schools or our universities, would you now stand so that we can pray for you? Wow. Wow. God, these we place in your hands, recognizing how important these days are recognizing that there are important conversations, important lectures that shape the trajectory of a life and perhaps of a family and a generation. We pray, God, that you would hold and keep these people, protect their bodies for sure, but protect their minds and their hearts and their imaginations. And may they know that you are the God of all learning and education, that you wholeheartedly bless and endorse this entire enterprise. May people study so as to glorify God. May people teach and serve so as to glorify you. And now, God, we end this prayer with the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, recognizing that as we pray it, God, little by little, it takes up ground in our mind and our hearts. And so, church, I want to invite you to pray this prayer along with me, and we will pray using debts debtors. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.